to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. If you're the type that likes to follow along in a Bible, 1 John chapter 3, we're going to start there. And uh, we're going to be there the whole time. Um, it's, it's been an honor and a privilege to journey with you guys for six years. And um, I look forward to many more um, in the future. For those of you who don't know me, this is all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor who just also happens to have rabbi training as well. So um, I saw my stuff comes from that bent. Also, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So I am qualified to sort your head out. So be careful what you say to me. I know these things. All right. All right so I've, I've, I've got something very special for you this morning. Um, it's very, very important. So I want, us to, I want us to make sure we sit up straight and we focus and we're going to submit ourselves um, to, the, to the word of God this morning. We're going to ask questions. We are going to respond. We don't want to be just just hearers. We want to be doers as well. And so I want to, I want, this is a message I wrote to help the church find true north. Because oftentimes all it, it doesn't take sin to destroy a church. It just takes distractions. It just takes getting into stuff that we have no business getting into. It just takes getting into stuff that we have no influence in, and nor should we, nor are we called to. I want to come back to what it actually means. I started asking a question, what did it mean in the first century to be the church of Jesus Christ? What did it mean in the first century to be a follower of Jesus? Because let, let me set this up. I'm going to read something out of 1 John chapter 3, but because it's in the middle of the book, I need to set up the context or it's not appropriate. In the first century, I know this is going to surprise you, but there were lots of arguments about what Jesus meant. Okay, I know because we would never argue about Jesus because it's obvious, right? But, but in, in, G, in, in Jesus' day, after he died and rose again and left, there were lots of different opinions about what Jesus meant. There were lots of different arguments, and some of them even sound silly. You know what the biggest argument in the first century was about Jesus? Was whether or not he had skin on. There was a group of people who said he did not have actual skin. He was a 33-year spiritual apparition. But then there was other people who said, no, 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 no. We ate with him, and the fish didn't fall through, right? And so, and so you've, got, you've got one group saying this, another group saying that. Uh, another argument about Jesus in the first century was how well did the cross work? So one group said the cross only worked for Jews. Another group said, no, the cross worked for the whole world, right? So one group said it didn't work so well. Another group said it worked really, really well, right? Then there was an argument about what must I do to inherit eternal life? And one group said faith in Christ alone is enough for, for, faith, for, for eternal life. Another group said, no, it is faith in Christ, but it's also you got to become like us. you got to do the feast and the festivals and keep the right. And so there was a group saying, group A was saying the cross worked really well. Group B was saying it didn't. Group A was saying Jesus had flesh on. Group B was saying no. Group A was saying that it's, it's faith in Christ alone. Group B was saying, no, you've got to do other sort of things. And so there were lots. Of, could you imagine trying to pastor a church in Galilee in the first century when 97% of people were illiterate and there was no Bible anyway? And this should be obvious, but the Bible that you're holding in your lap right there was only put together in the mid-300s. Yeah. You imagine trying to pastor in 53 AD in Galilee when 97% of people can't read, there was no Bible, and there was all these arguments. What the heck would you do? <laughs> it is in that context that John writes a letter, and he writes it back to the pastors of that region to try to right the ship of the church. Because if you tune me out, tune me back in. 
the church in the first century started to be more interested in arguing about doctrine than changing their world. That doesn't apply to us at all, right? And so he writes back into that to right the ship, to say, no, no, let's find true north. And here's what he says. If you read 1 John from the beginning, I'm just going to summarize it. This is what he says. Everything you saw in Jesus Christ was true since the beginning of time. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. Jesus just simply showed you what God was always like. That's one. Two, when Jesus forgives sins, he forgives all sins everywhere and doesn't leave one sin unturned. That's two. Three, he didn't just die for Jews. He died for the whole world. He died for Singaporeans and Chinese and Europeans and Americans and, yes, even Australians. He died for every person. So John says this. John says, hey, first, Jesus, not a new reality, actually a physical manifestation of what God was always like. Two, when he forgives sins, he forgives them all. Three, he died for the whole world, not just for Jews. And then he ends, he, that's it. It's, it takes him like 15 verses to make all of his doctrinal statements. And then he stops. And then he spends the entire rest of the five-chapter book talking about this. What difference does it make if you're the rightest church in Singapore, if you're not known for being the kindest church in Singapore? What difference does it make if you understand all kinds of mysterious things about God, if all that understanding doesn't motivate you to treat other people more kindly? What difference does it make if you're the most doctrinally correct group of people in the whole world, if all of that doctrine isn't motivating you to change your world for the better? What difference does that make? Now, it's in that context that we read this. Here we go. If you guys could bring that first one up. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is 1 John 3, verse 11. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. If I love that. If the world hates you. Now watch this next verse. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we get all of our doctrines straight. Nope. We know we've passed from death to life because we did the right rituals at the right moment at the right time. Nope. We know we've passed from death to life because there's no error in our doctrinal creed. Nope. We know we've passed from death to life because there's no error in our pamphlets. Uh-uh. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. The most ancient definition of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus is followers of Jesus prioritize love over everything else. Now, this has enormous implications. And I'll tell you why. When we don't have language for big things, like if I was to stand here and say, we need to be known to be a more loving church, who in the world would disagree with that? You can't. They'd be like, no, we should be more mean. No, nobody would do that, right? Right? But here's the problem. We need to be a more loving church. Everybody would cheer that, right? Here's the problem. I, yeah, thank you. Thank you. We need to be a more loving church, right? Here's the problem. When we don't have language to define what that looks like, it can be very frustrating. Because being loving to one person is different than being loving... To another, And so let's see how he defines it. I want to dig into this a bit. Next slide. 
So um, observations. One, when, you're, when, you, when you love, you're experiencing some version of eternal life now. To John, eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts now and just continues on. And one entry point into that is choosing to be a person of love. And conversely, when you hate, you're experiencing some version of death, darkness, and decrease now. So life can be experienced now by being a person of love. Death can be experienced now by being a person of hate. See, for us, life and death are static images, and that's the problem. For Westerners and, and for Singaporeans, for Chinese, for, life and death are static. You live or you die. You're either living or you're dying. But to a first century Jew, life and death were not static. Life and death were dynamic dimensions that you moved in and out of. If you were in God's ways, you were said to be living in life, light, and increase. If you were living outside of God's ways, you were said to be living in death, darkness, and decrease. But no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, if you repented, you could come back and be in life, light, and increase. See, it was dynamic dimensions. Maybe we could say it another way to make sure we get the point across. Next slide. For us, the question is always how to have life after death. That's what we're enamored with. Life after, what happens after you die? Like if I died today, and you came to my funeral on Wednesday, and then I showed up here next Sunday, I would ruin your service. It's like, oh my God, Shane Willard is here, right? Bring him up. Let's have a Q&A. What would the first Q be? What would the first question be? It wouldn't even be, are you okay? It would be, tell us what happens after you die. We love that stuff. In the first century, no one cared about that. Let me prove it to you. Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's pretty impressive. Died, rose from the dead, comes back from the dead. How much does he talk about heaven? None. How much does he talk about hell? None. I find that amazing. What I find more amazing is no one asked him. <laughs> he shows back up and their response, you would think their response would be, ha, ah, you're back. What was heaven like? What was hell like? I heard you preach there. How'd that go? How was your altar call in hell? Did you clean out hell, you rascal, you? I'd want to ask all kinds of things, right? Jesus comes back from the dead, and no one asked him what happened after he died. Why? In the first century, they didn't care about that. When Jesus comes back from the dead, what do they ask him? Ha! Huh? Oh, great, you're back. Are we going to take over Rome now? Is it now that the kingdom is coming to the earth? See, we always want to know how to have life after death. What John is trying to answer is how to have life before death. How do you live on your way? See, in Jesus' day, the average age of death was 32 years old. Average age of dying was 32 years old in the first century. 32. So till death do us part meant something totally different. <laughs> till death do us part was like, oh, I'll put up with their stuff for another 10 years. You'll probably die. Right, right? Now, now we live to 84. So be careful when you make that marriage choice. You've got to live with them long, long time. See, see the word he uses is metababakamen. In, in other words, a Christian's job is not to sit on their butt and wait to go to heaven when they die. That's boring. Unless you're 107. Now, look, if you're 107, feel free to wait to go to heaven when you die. It's like right around the corner, all right? But if you're 26 and your whole thing is I'm waiting to go to heaven when I die, that's boring. That's horrendous. John's trying to answer the question, on our way to heaven when we die, how do we partner with Jesus here? And his first observation is your first choice is to choose to be a loving person. 
to choose to be a person of love. It, it, he uses the word metababakamen to change basis. In other words, if you find your life on the basis of death and you want to know that you've been moved to the basis of life, first choice, choose to be a loving person. The question is, what does that mean? Let's examine the language. Next slide. So John says one entry point into life is to commit to loving each other. So let's say this a few different ways. Central to Christianity is seeing all of life as a gift. Everything we have is free. Okay, let's go through them. Big things. Life, free. None of us deserve to be here. None of us put our parents together and gave them amorous feelings for each other, right? None of us, none of us, and let me say this because of where I am, none of us chose where we were born. You don't deserve to be born in one of the top five greatest nations on this earth. You're in Singapore, man. When I hear people complain about Singapore, I'm like, heck, man, if you can't make it here, just where are you going to go? <laughs> Honest to God, you're in Singapore. You live in a country with motor cars, paved roads, and stores that prepackage food for you. You've got clean water in your taps, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road. You're in Singapore, man. Free. Breath, free, that's a big thing. Everybody take a deep breath in and then out. That was free for now. At some point they might tax it, but free now, right? Free. And you know what? We all take that for granted because we do it all the time, right? You know who the only people who don't take breath for granted are? Asthmatics. People with pneumonia, people emphysema, or if you'd start choking. Like, it, 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 it's amazing what happens when you can't breathe. Nothing else matters. Priorities flip. I, I choked one time in a restaurant. It's the first time I ever met a pastor. I, I, he wanted to book me. He said, but before I book you, I want to meet you. I said, great. So we met at a Thai restaurant in Brisbane, and he ordered salt and pepper calamari as the appetizer. And the long story short, that, uh, that, a piece of that salt and pepper calamari went down my windpipe, like the whole piece. And I, all of a sudden, I couldn't get one ounce of breath. Nothing mattered at that point. I didn't care how I looked to him. I didn't care what I said. I didn't care. I'd, I'd have wrote a check for everything I owned to get one more breath. Amazing how everything changes when that free gift gets taken away. Amazing. I was all of a sudden okay with things I normally am not okay with. Like an Asian dude I've never met sticking his fingers in my mouth, right? <laughs> the Thai cook, the, the, this Thai cook I've never met, right? Comes running out of the kitchen, never met the guy. He put me in a reverse headlock, stuck his fingers down my mouth. This, so this guy I've never met took his fingers and shoved it down my mouth. And I loved it. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. I loved it. I was like, yeah, get you some of that. Why? Because my breath was gone. Forgiveness is free. Like none of us, our story is, you know what? God wasn't going to forgive me. But then I prayed the right prayer at the right moment, at the right time, in the right posture. And God was like, you know what? I wasn't going to forgive you, but now I will. No way. Free. Resurrection's free. And we take that for granted because it's happening everywhere. It's happening right now in this room. Let me prove it to you. Everybody take a second look at the back of your hand. Really easy to do. You just do that. And I want you to become aware of something. That the skin on the back of your hand is brand new. 28 days ago, that did not exist. Every 28 days, your skin is, re is reproducing itself. 
And you know that intuitively, which is why like when it gets a little cooler, you wake up and there's a bit of dandruff on your pillowcase in the morning. Nobody panics. Nobody's like, oh no, I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. At this rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No, you just know your skin reproducing itself. Eternal life, free, salvation free, all free. None of us deserve any of that. Now, if that's true, then this is true. Next slide. If life's a gift, then certain things don't belong in the light. Greed doesn't belong. Hoarding doesn't belong. Complaining. Like if God handed you a gift and you complain about that gift, that, like at Christmas, if you give someone a Christmas gift and they open the gift and they're like, Really? Is that your best effort, right? <laughs> if someone does that, is the, problem, is the problem with the gift giver or the gift receiver? receiver. It's with the receiver. But, but how, many of us, how many of us do that to God? How many of us complain to God about the gift of life and breath and eternal life and forgiveness and gifts and talents and passions and personalities and where are we born? How many, of us, how many of us go to God and say, God, I want somebody else's life? I think God mutes all complaints out of Singapore. It's like, God, this guy's complaining again. What, what, what's his problem? Well, he doesn't like the life you gave him. Where does he live? Singapore. Is that that country with motor cars and paved roads and stores that prepackage food for people and clean water and tap and machines that do washing and other machines that do drying and world-class health care and laws that protect the weak against the strong? Is that that country? Yes. <laughs> Nothing is less attractive than wanting somebody else's life. Everything you need to be what you need to be is in your world right now. It's in your life right now. Let me illustrate this. I, um, I used to be, years ago, I was on staff at a very large church, and one of my jobs was I was the singles pastor. So I was the, I was the pastor over single adults. So that, and, and, man, we built a big thing. We had a really, really cool thing, and I loved it, all right? I loved almost every bit of it. The problem was is that single adults are notorious for wanting what they don't have. Namely, a spouse. <laughs> so half my week was spent like this. Shane, I just want to be married. I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, pray for me to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. I was like, no, you don't. Listen, listen, let me be frank, okay? If you're single, listen to me. Let me be very frank. If you can't cope with the pressure of being single, you don't have a prayer on earth coping with the pressure of being married. Right? Like a single, a single person's prayer tickles me. It's like, dear Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, English-speaking Jesus. <laughs> Joe here. I'm, um, I'm 27. I am able-bodied, and I'm single. Let me tell you my, about my life, Lord Jesus. Um, I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't have to run it by anybody, nor do I have to feel guilty about doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And most importantly, Lord Jesus, no one on this earth is spending my money other than me. Now... <clears throat> 
despite all these things that I know sounds awesome, I'm still pressured. So I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, to entrust me with one of your beloved daughters in order to make my life harder. For goodness sake. I am, I am. Here it comes. Get ready. The problem was my other job at the church was I was the church psychotherapist because I have my degree in that. So I had to do all the counseling in the whole church, which is 90% marriage counseling. So half my week was spent with this. Shane, I want to be married. 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 Shane, pray for me to be married. I want to be married. I want to be married. The other half of my week was spent, Shane, I want to be single. I want to be single. I wanted to be single. So the married people want to be single. The single people want to be married. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can hook y'all up. I don't know what to do. <laughs> And no one wanted to bloom in the field God planted them in. Look, if you're married, listen to me. If you're married, make it the best marriage in the room. What choice do you have? Pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief from them? What? Because of modern medicine, we live to 84 now. Just settle in. Make it the best marriage in the room. And listen, if you're single, listen to me. There is, be the best single person in the room. Listen, let me be frank, okay? I know this is a big comedy routine, and I'm glad, but all great comedy is funny because it's, yeah. It is true. Listen to me, listen to me. There is nothing attractive about being a person who's entirely focused on what you do not have. The most attractive single people in the world are, the, are not the ones, I want to be married, I want to be married. The, the most attractive single people in the world are the ones waking up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for their life. They've got the throttle all the way to the ground, doing everything God's called them to do, and one day they might wake up and realize someone's doing it with them. Okay? Let me talk to you single adults for a second because you guys seem into this, okay? All right. Listen, listen. Everything you need to be everything you need to be is already in your field. If you want to be married, I want you to be married, and so does God want to give you the desires of your heart, okay? But to be attractive to somebody else, you cannot be focused on what you do not have. Attractive people are the ones doing everything they can with what they do have, so do everything you have and do everything you can with what you do have. That is attractive. Second, put your list away. Okay? Put your list away. They're embarrassing. <laughs> oh, Pastor Shane, I'm believing God for a spouse. I'm believing God for a spouse. I've got my list. I've got my list. Have you seen these lists? There's a guy, it's a while back now, he was like, I'm believing God for a spouse, Pastor Shane. I want, you to believe, I want you to believe God with me. I'm believing God for a spouse. I've got my specific list I'm believing for. I said, let me see your list. You should have seen this woman. I have never, I'm positive she doesn't exist. She was blonde for the sake of appropriateness, curvy, 
She was faithful, dependable, passionate, successful in her career, and emotionally low maintenance. All in one power-packed package. I said, I said to him, I said, mate. That tells you where he lived. I said, I said, I said, mate, this girl's a 10. He said, of course she's a 10, Pastor Shane. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. We serve the God of the possible, the God of more than enough, the God of all things. We serve a God that is bigger and stronger and mightier. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. I said, but bro, you're a four. Like on your best day, you're a four. Girls like this don't marry people like you. Girls like this marry brain surgeons. The last thing you need is for God to bring a woman like this in your life. She wouldn't give you the time of day. No way. You don't need this woman. You need to become a seven yourself and then lower your standards 30% and something might happen. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me, you do not need, you do not need to find the one that is ridiculous. You need to become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for. And if you become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for, they will find you. One more thing, one more thing for you single adults. And you married people better say amen to this because I'm right, okay? One more thing for you single adults. You can take it or leave it. It won't affect my life at all. But you listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. Okay? Never, ever, 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 can I be clearer, ever ask someone to change while you're dating them. You're already getting their best effort. Dating, dating is someone's sincerest attempt to impress you. If their sincerest attempt to impress you fails to impress you, leave. Listen, 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 listen. Listen, when you're dating, pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Multiply it by five, <laughs> add some occasional horrendous smells, and you've got marriage. And, all, and if you still love them, you probably found the one. And all the married people said, Amen. <laughs> Bloom in the field God planted you in. Right, let's say it this way. Since we receive what we don't deserve, we should treat others the same. This is how John starts to define what being a loving person is. He makes this big point. You receive what you don't deserve, so we should treat others not as they deserve, but how they're worth. One question to ask ourselves is, in terms of are we a loving people is, do we treat people as they are worth or do we treat people as they deserve? Loving people do not treat people how they deserve. Loving people treat people how they're worth. Wow. Jesus said it this way. If you want to know what God's like, 
Look at flowers and look at birds. They do nothing to deserve it, but God feeds them and clothes them because they're worth it. How much more worth are you to God? In other words, God never treats someone as they deserve. Anytime you hear a Christian talking about, well, they deserve this. Yeah, they do. But the beauty of God is, is that God never treats people how they deserve. He always treats people how they're worth before God. Let me go back to marriage for a second, okay? I don't know who has the best marriage in the room, but whoever that is, let me tell you what I know about you. Whoever has the best marriage in this room, whoever has the best marriage in this room, let me tell you, let me tell you what I figured out, okay? Whoever has the best marriage in this room, you have learned to treat each other as you are worth and not as you deserve. You do not love your wife because she deserves it. There will be days she will. Other days, not so much. That's called life. You love your wife because she's worth it to you. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. There'll be days he deserves it. There'll be days he'll amaze you with his incredible intellect and problem-solving ability. Other days, he's going to be a flipping idiot. That's called life, right? You respect your husband because he's worth it to you. You, res- you love your wife because she's worth it. Do we treat people as they are worth or as they deserve? That's the question. Watch how John frames this. This is the next verse. Watch this. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, so we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. In other words, you got what you don't deserve. Keep that in mind every single day that you are where you are because not of what you deserve, but because of the grace of God. And let that determine how you treat other people. If any, now watch his application. He goes further specifics. What does it mean to be loving? Watch this. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? What does it mean to be a loving person? Loving people meet needs that they know they can meet. You don't don't have to be burdened by stuff you could do nothing about. But when you see a need and you know you could meet the need and then you purposely turn your back on that need and you think God lives in you, how? I'd love to hear your theology for that. Oh, but uh, yeah, yeah. If you see a need and you know you could meet the need and you purposely turn your back on that need and God's in the middle of that how? I love how John does it. He leaves it as a question. He doesn't answer it for us. He says, you go wrestle. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but actions and truth. In other words, don't tell people you'll pray for them when you can obviously meet the need. Don't say, oh, brother, I'll be in prayer about that. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Can you meet the need or not? If you can't, pray about it. If you can, do something about it. Right? Watch what he says. Watch this. This is how we know we belong to the truth. And now we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts don't, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And what was his command we're supposed to keep? To believe in Jesus and to love one another. The word keep there, I don't have time to go through all this, but the word keep there does not mean to obey. He goes to great lengths to say no one obeys all the commands. Anybody that says they do is a liar. The word keep, there's an ancient castle word. It was called a castle keep. It it, it meant to protect. We would say it in in, in sports. We would say a goal keeper. It's not mean obey the goal. It means protect the goal. If you, we would would say it, we say it in child care. So so if you have a a two-year-old and you have a quick emergency and you hand me your two-year-old and say, can you keep him for a second? I'll be right back. Does that mean obey the two-year-old? No, that means protect the two-year-old. Keep. John says the, the job of the church of Jesus Christ is to protect the command to love, to protect belief in Jesus, 
and to protect love. Protect love. Discuss doctrine, but defend love. Discuss doctrine, but defend love. We draw a line in the sand and we will not become an unloving people. Now, this is interesting, right? Because he says, if you'd have the ability to meet the need and then you purposely turn your back on the need, how can God live in that? It doesn't read well in English. One of the most basic hermeneutics you could ever do is look at different translations. Let me show you a few different translations. Next slide. So the NIV says, have no pity on them. I see it. I know I could meet the need. No, I'm going to have no pity on them. The NLT says, show no mercy to them. I see it. I know I could do it. No. The ISV says, withhold compassion from them. The ASV says, shut up compassion towards them. But my personal favorite is the King James Version. Let me show you that one. Next one. Shutteth up thou bowels on them. Shutteth up thou bowels. Isn't it amazing how the English language has changed? In the 1600s, it was a good thing to open your bowels on somebody. It, it, meant, to, um, it meant to be charitable. S -s same in the first century. Actually, of, of, of the five translations, the King James Version is actually the most literally correct in this one instance. It, it, because, because in the first century, the center, see, the NIV, when they got a hold of it, to open your bowels on somebody is a bad thing. Like, I don't want any of you opening your bowels towards me, right? But, but in the 1600s, it wasn't. And in the first century, it wasn't. See, in the first century, the center of life was your bowel. It wasn't your heart. Like, if you were dating someone in the first century and you said, sweetie, I just love you with all my heart, she'd be like, you weirdo. She'd run from you, right? There's no way. That's weird. Beating thing. No way. What you would say in the first century, if you love somebody, is you would say, sweetie, oh, I just love you with all my bowel. Well, if you said that to a woman in the first century, she'd be like, oh, you move my bowels too. The center of life was your bowel. Let, let, me, let, let me show it to you. This is the, the original language was obviously Greek. Let me show it to you in Greek. This, here it is in Greek. The original language says, Kleose Tashplakna. Okay, that should be easy. Kleose, close, ta, the, shplakna, bowel. Don't, don't, it's literally, don't be a tight. But like it's, it's, it's don't, don't be... Um, don't shut off your bowel. Don't, don't, if you see a need and you know you can meet the need, don't shut it up your bowels, right? That's literally what it says. It, essentially, he's saying, get off your butt and open your bowels. It, it's, it's that. It's, it, now, we would say it differently. We would say, don't close your heart. Don't close your inner parts. Don't withhold your life source. Don't be greedy. We, we would say it that way. In the first century, it was easy to say it. They would just say, don't, don't close your bowel. Don't Don't live with a closed splachna. The key to entering life is this. Next slide. Open your splachna. <laughs> what if we live life with an open splachna instead of a closed one? 
which leads to all kinds of questions. I want us to wrestle with at least three. Next slide. Do you experience God yet leave the same? Like is your story, you know what, I come to church and I do the worship and, and, and I listen to the word. Nothing's changed in my life. I don't think, it all, I don't think any of it works. Well, the problem is, is it's working for other people. And the issue isn't that you're bad. It might be that you're experiencing God with a closed splachna instead of an open one. Like in, in this digital age, it's harder to be a speaker now than ever because the people, anybody can broadcast everything you say. So you constantly have to come up with something new because people have heard it all. The other thing is, is that people take notes on their cell phones. And so from up here, I can't tell if you're taking notes or if you're checking Facebook. See? But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. So I just choose to believe you're all taking notes. Otherwise, it would bother me, right? But, 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 but here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? If you listen to this entire sermon and was checking Facebook in the middle of it, you can't blame God for your life not changing. Is it that you're bad? No. Are you rude? A little bit. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's not that you're bad, but when you experience something with a closed splagna instead of an open one, God, my whole life source is yours. How can we do this better? It's different. Do you relate to someone who's hard to love? You know that one at work you just wish God would go ahead and take them to heaven? You know that one? Maybe the issue is we're experiencing God with a close, we're experiencing those people with a close black nut instead of an open one toward them. But the most obvious application for today, the most obvious is simply this. Do you see a need and you know you could meet the need? Is there a need and you know that you can meet it? Let me talk to you very, very bluntly. And it's because I love you. John says if you see a need and you know you can meet the need and you do nothing about it, how can God be in that at all? Here's my question. Is there a need and you know you can meet it? Here's my question. Pastor Daniel, Andre, these guys, they're putting their best into this church, right? right? It is statistically improbable that there's not at least one person in this room who could write a check for six figures and never miss it. What are you going to do? You can take it with you? Open your splatina, man. So you're worth $7.2 million, and you would go from 7.2 to 7.1. Ooh. If you see a need, do you know how much more this church could do if the people who had it opened their splatina? You might be thinking, now Shane, 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 Shane. Listen, I've only got 40 bucks. I've only got 40 bucks. Okay. You're not the financial answer to anything. You probably need another job. <laughs> but let's, take, let's do something. Let's take money. Let's take money and let's set it to the side and let's pretend like it doesn't exist. Here's the one thing we all have the same amount of. Time. You know what I noticed when I got here today? This church has a few needs from a host and hostess team perspective. If I was a first-time guest, I wouldn't exactly have known where to go. We need a few people downstairs. Now, the host and host team here did a good job, but I know that they could use a few more hands. What's your excuse? I can't show up early and be nice to people. What? 
open your splachna, man. You, listen to me, let me be blunt. You cannot ask God to give you more if you're not using what he gave you now. Why would he ever do that? You know what? I don't know who's running the children's church downstairs. I do not know, but I know I love them. And I'll tell you why. The last thing this church needs is a bunch of five-year-olds running around in here. The last thing this church needs is mother spending half the sermon going, shut up, be quiet. And children should never have to listen to me preach. I'd be the worst children's pastor on earth. You imagine me trying to speak to children? Okay, boys and girls, we're going to talk about splachnas. Give me your fingers. No, what? No. I'm sure... I'm sure that whoever's running the children's church could use a few more safe hands down there. What's your excuse? What's your excuse? This way? I know, that's really entertaining. This way? Right? This way? What's your excuse? I can't show up and be nice to children? Come on. Open your splack to men. You say, Shane, you don't understand. I hate children. I hate them. They're gross, little, disgusting mongrels. Okay, you're probably not our children's person. But let me tell you about the youth. I don't know who's running the youth, but I do know this about youth. Let me tell you something about youth. The people that Daniel was the youth pastor for 20 years ago are the ones that are the decision makers now. And you can't complain where the next generation takes the place if you're not going to be willing to be a part of molding their values when it's moldable. What's our excuse there? I can't show up and, and help the next generation. What? Are you kidding me? Open your splachna. Maybe you're the best musician in Singapore. No one knows it. Now, I want to be very careful with this one. If you're not, if you're not sure that you're good... Get it checked out first, right? By somebody not named mom. But if you're really good, what are you doing? You can't, you can't show up early and help? And yet, and yet we're going to ask God to bless us? What? Open your splachna. You say, Shane, you don't know me, man. You don't know me. I'm a jerk. No one would want me on their team. Okay, two thoughts on that one. If you know you're a jerk, mm, stop being a jerk. That's one. <laughs> two, even, even if you're introverted and can't stand people, you can still be a sound guy. There's a wall separating you from all people. You, you literally have to speak to no person. You turn knobs, you make it sound awesome. Come on. Open your splatina, man. How do we enter life? How do we live life before death? Here's what John says. John says, if you want to really live, really live, here's what you do. You wake up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for you, and you live your life with a wide open splatina. When you see a need and you know you can do something about it, you do something about it, for that is life. So I want us to be quiet before the Lord. I want us to let the white noise be canceled for a second. And I want you to be brave enough to pray this prayer underneath your breath. Lord Jesus, would you speak to me about a need that I could meet? 
Please don't burden me with needs I can do nothing about. Speak to me about a need I could meet. And Lord, give me the courage to meet that need. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never opened your heart to Jesus for the first time. And right there where you're sitting, you can surrender your life to Jesus. You can open your splachna to the, to the move of God. You can say something like this if you need words. Lord Jesus, I'm choosing to trust your version of my story instead of my own. I think your version of my life story is better than the one I could ever write for myself. I'm trusting you. Would you look this way? In all the quietness of this moment, I want you to listen to me. Don't let this leave you. Within the next 24 hours, I want you to make a commitment. If you're not involved, I want you to email, text, call, whatever they want you to do, Daniel, Andre, one of the staff here, and say, I don't really know where I fit, but if you'll help me learn, I'd love to open my splachna and help you build the kingdom here. Open your splachna.